Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 33, Christine Bartholomew, Exercising the Clergy Privilege. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Christine Bartholomew. Christine is associate professor at SUNY Buffalo Law School. She teaches complex litigation and antitrust, and her research is in those areas, along with evidence and civil procedure. Our podcast today features Christine's new article, Exercising the Clergy Privilege, which is forthcoming in the Virginia Law Review. As its name implies, the article focuses on the clergy privilege, which courts have, of course, long used to promote confidentiality in the context of religious and spiritual relationships. In the article, Christine does an extensive survey of the statutory and case law, and she discovers that even though the clergy privilege is quite broad and generous as a formal matter, it's actually much more limited in practice. What's even more surprising is that the chief driver of this narrowing of the privilege appears to be the members of the clergy themselves. Christine explores the reasons for this evolution in the clergy privilege and proposes some paths forward to bring the law on the books more in line with the law in practice. Christine, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to this. Your article, of course, deals with the clergy penitent privilege. To start us off, can you tell us a little about the origins of the privilege as a historical matter? Oh, sure. It goes far back, but I'll just start with U.S. history. New York, my home, has the privilege of being the first to originate a clergy privilege. In 1811, there had been a case involving a Protestant minister, and the court had said that such communications between a communicant and a Protestant minister didn't count as a privilege, that the privilege at that point was limited to Catholicism. In response, the New York state legislation decided to pass a rule, the statute 1828, I believe. And from there, it just took off with other states adopting similar rules so that now every single state has a codified clergy privilege. On the federal side, it's not codified specifically, but instead it falls under the protection of Federal Rule of Evidence 501. And in modern times, what are the formal contours of the privilege? So when I teach the privilege in class, I think I, like many others, lump it together with other absolute professional privileges like attorney-client and psychotherapist-patient. Are there aspects of the clergy penitent privilege that make its scope a little different than the others? It's funny, I too had lumped these together until after this project and then started now severing it out. On its face, the clergy privilege and its basic requirements match the rest of the professionalism privileges. You need to have a clergy, you need to have a communicant, there has to be a confidential communication, it has to be with regard to spiritual advice, and it has to be given to the clergyman in their professional capacity. I mean, this sounds just like what we think about for psychotherapists and what we think about for attorneys. But the rub, I think, has primarily to do with what it means to have a spiritual communication. 
the way the statutes are written in most states now, spiritual communication is so broad. Unlike a lawyer's advice, it includes things like solace and comfort, which really kind of creates at least the impression or appearance of much broader protection than perhaps we would think of for other professional privileges. One of the significant insights in your article, though, is that despite this broad reach, at least in theory, that the privilege has actually experienced a lot of contraction in practice. Can you tell us a little more about that and how you determined that this contraction was taking place? I found the privilege to be something that I had been thinking about and pondering about when I was teaching it, and enough so that I had been asking myself kind of the same questions you had asked. How does this compare to other privileges? What's going on there? And I found that I couldn't really get any of those answers in a way that I felt comfortable. So what I started doing was just reading a ton of the clergy privilege cases and noticing just in my initial scan that that more often than not, the court was not finding the privilege, despite what seemed like sweeping statutory protection. To see if my gut reaction was correct, I decided to look at every published opinion I could find. Of course, whenever you do this type of empirical project, you're crazy in the first place to decide to do these things. But you're also not quite sure if your gut's correct, what you're going to find, if you can see geographic differences and what else. By the end of the project, what I found was despite statutory protection that seemed so broad, in application, courts seemed quite reticent to find the privilege. And perhaps even more troubling to me was the role of clergy in declining to find the privilege. It was often because of something the clergy had said or the way a clergy had characterized the communication that ensured it would fall outside of the testimonial privilege. And this is so that it would fall outside that otherwise broad definition of spiritual advice. Is that how they ended up doing this? They did this in three ways, primarily through defining spiritual communication much more narrowly than in the statutes, but also in defining confidentiality and their professional capacity much more narrowly than the statutory language might suggest. One concern that I had in this context, this empirical context, is publication bias, sort of a topic close to my heart. Oh, yeah. So my, my assumption is that when you have a privilege case and the judge excludes the evidence, it's not all that interesting, especially when, as a formal matter, you have a statute or, as a matter of common law, a privilege that's really broad. More interesting are the cases where the judge rules to narrow the privilege and to admit the testimony. That seems to be something that is contrary to where you think the privilege might go. Could it be that there isn't actually a contraction, but what we're seeing here is just the more controversial cases? Or do you have a sense that you actually do have a contraction? I think that you raise a really important point. Whenever you do these types of empirical projects, you're never going to capture every decision. You're not going to capture the on-the-bench quick assessments. You're not going to capture things that are unpublished. And in undertaking this project, I actually stopped halfway through for this very reason. But then I took a step back and thought, well, even if it's not an absolute picture, it still is more information than we currently had about what was happening in this area. And if you're correct that perhaps the instances where courts exclude the privilege, then if anything, that would drive the exclusion numbers even higher than what I had found. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's probably end up with something of a snowball effect. 
So you see the cases in which you have contraction and then the courts start to contract even more or limit the privilege more. Yes, and I've definitely been thinking about that and its impact, but I still think that, of course, there's always questions about sample size and whatever else, but I felt comfortable enough to at least say that there was a visible trend. You know, of course, it couldn't do anything causal or further, but I was surprised by the tracking and how as the rise of assertions, or at least the rise of published decisions occurred, there was a notable decline in courts' willingness to allow the privilege to stand. I want to go back to this idea about the clergy actually fighting against the privilege, which seems a little counterintuitive. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that phenomenon? Why would the clergy want to thwart the privilege itself? So I think one thing I really, really want to be clear on, I don't think this is in any way nefarious. I actually think clergy are in a bit of a pickle because they have so many competing duties and the clergy privilege presumes that confidentiality is at the utmost importance for clerics. And it certainly is important, but so is protecting congregations and so is helping victims and so is the search for justice. And what happens is sometimes consciously or otherwise, it seems in these cases that clergy are struggling with these competing duties. For instance, one of the findings I, I noticed was the more violent the crime, the more willing the clergy were to say, oh gosh, this is not protected. It can't be protected. Either because they'll say this wasn't actually in my professional capacity or I didn't consider this confidential, even if I told a communicant it would be confidential. So there are these moments where these competing tensions, to me, actually explain tremendously why a cleric might not want to hold on to information that undermines these other duties that they own. Now, of course, there's a, a second piece to this puzzle. The cleric's try to limit it, or maybe they don't intentionally limit it, but because of these competing concerns, they characterize things in ways that limit the privilege. But the other side of this is that the judiciary seems to be deferring to the clergy in how to define the privilege. Basically, the judiciary believes or allows the religious person to actually change or characterize the privilege. Why is that? Oh, gosh, now that's the real question, right? In some ways, I think it's because of judicial concerns about attempting to intercede on canonical law. Judges don't want to try to figure out what the parameters of, say, a Baptist religion is on confidentiality. I also think, though, that there's a situation here where the communicant inevitably is saying that the privilege applies right? Otherwise, we wouldn't even have a privilege issue. The vast majority of the time, the communicant is saying, of course, this was privileged, and they're saying, here's why. The judge, in assessing whether the privilege should go forward, then has one side who's reticent and insistent, turns to the clergy, and if the clergy says something to the contrary, the judge, in that moment, seems to be engaging in a certain amount of fact-finding and is willing to defer to the clergy, if only because of religious tenets, but also, I think, out of a general decades-long historical comfort with, with relying on clergy. So let's talk solutions. In your article, having noticed this phenomenon, you propose revising the clergy privilege to be a qualified privilege rather than an absolute one. Why is that the solution? 
I don't know for sure that it is. I struggled and struggled with the solution. At one point, I thought, oh gosh, one option would be to have the clergy own the privilege. Professor Colombo had offered a similar solution in a prior paper, and my first, I thought, oh, that makes some sense. That has some problems that I wasn't comfortable with. Then I thought, well, what I really suspect should happen here is that the courts need to re-engage in this process instead of taking a hands-off approach. By shifting this from an absolute to a qualified privilege, it seemed more unified with our general belief that evidence should be admissible, unless there's some really, really, really good reason it's not. If the starting point for privileges is that they're qualified unless you can prove that they're absolute, tailoring back the first more moderate step would be to move towards a qualified privilege to allow case law to begin to identify series of factors that could be used in these cases instead of them just being one-offs clergy by clergy. The concern I have here is that the qualified privilege, though, somewhat entangles the judiciary into making decisions about religious values. When you have a qualified privilege, the, the judiciary is making the balance, but this has to do with religion. And so it seems that you, know, you might not want that to occur. Does that create potential First Amendment issues? I don't think so. I thought at first it could, but I'm not sure it would. We already have courts engaging in some similar types of activity. If you look to see what courts are doing in Religious Freedom Protection Act cases, they too are having to define religious concepts. If you look at tax cases where courts are trying to figure out if a church qualifies for a certain exemption, we already are engaging in a certain amount of religious undertakings where initially the concerns have been on the clergy privilege were in courts having to define what counts as a religion. Interestingly, that wasn't much of a problem in this study. Whether someone was a clergy or not didn't seem to be nearly as outcome determinative as whether something was within the realm of a spiritual communication. And it seems to me that as courts struggle to figure out that line, I have a suspicion that it's going to go back to the legislation to figure out, was it an appropriate expansion of these statutes to go so far from spiritual communications to things like solace and comfort and aid that has hindered the willingness of clergy to rely on this privilege. Much as it results in kind of unpredictability, I'm really troubled by the idea that a communicant would think that something's privileged and find out later that it's not. By calling it a qualified privilege, it at least could eventually create a situation where communicants recognize that not everything they say is going to be protected and can engage in a certain amount of questioning with their clergy about the consequences of sharing certain disclosures. I suppose that actually is a big advantage of the qualified privilege as opposed to giving the ownership of the privilege to the clergy member. Because in many ways, having the ownership with the clergy member is a pretty good match to current practice, but your solution prevents the communicant from being surprised that the clergy member is suddenly disclosing all of the information. I thought about that too, the ownership issues. Should I make it something like an adverse spousal testimony privilege where one person holds the privilege but can waive it on the other side? And initially, I thought that there was something appealing about that, except for what happened in the church abuse cases. Handing over that power to the clergy made me a tad bit uncomfortable because as I looked at what was happening in the clergy abuse cases, the definition that the clergy had used was so much more expansive than what they were using in other scenarios. And 
that made me deeply reticent just to say, you know, who should own this privileged clergy. Tell me more about that. So how did it turn out in these church abuse cases that the ownership wouldn't work? So if you look at the cases where clerics themselves are accused of child abuse, invariably in those cases, the cleric, the churches themselves, took a vastly more expansive position about what would be privileged. In notable contrast to the overall trend to narrow the privilege, and that sort of self-dealing or self-interest made me uncomfortable to just hand over the privilege to clergy to say that they should have complete ownership of it. Now, I guess presumably drawing an analogy to the spousal testimonial privileges and the marital confidences privileges that you could have an exception for cases in which the church is sued, just like you have the exception for domestic violence, right? And that probably would handle that problem. Yes and no. I notice in some of the cases where if there is a member of a religion Remember of a certain congregation, and that congregation's practice is to internally investigate child abuse, as opposed to turning it over to other types of investigators, that the same trend occurred where there was a deeply protectionist view of their own church. So not only was it occurring when the church was the defendant itself, but also when the investigation for child abuse was being conducted internally in a church, even if the defendant wasn't the church itself. Final question for you, and one that I often ask our guests, where would you like to see research in this area go? And are there areas that you would like to explore or would like other people to explore in future research? Oh, yeah. There are tons of places to go from this and so many questions I have left. One of my next projects is going to be comparing the interpretation that courts use in the Religious Freedom Protection Act cases on how they define religion and explaining how what we've learned from the clergy privilege might influence the direction of that case law. I also think that the obvious next step from this is how does the clergy privilege compare in practice to what happens in other professional privileges? Is this trend limited to clergy privilege or does it extend to attorney-client privilege, and I just didn't get there to know? Or do I see something similar happening in the journalist privilege or the psychotherapist privilege? We have these privileges. If you look at the face of the statute, you think something's happening, but until you get an opportunity to dig and have more scholars really digging into what's truly happening on the ground, it's not going to be clear if there's any type of disconnect between statutory protection and application that extends beyond just the clergy privilege. Well, Christine, Thanks for taking the time to enlighten us about the current state of the clergy privilege. It was great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Some of my favorite pieces of legal scholarship are the ones that show or suggest that the law in practice diverges from the law on the books. These pieces are particularly important in the evidence realm. With the federal rules, we may think that we have a uniform law of evidence, But when so many rulings are fact-specific, left to trial judges, and largely shielded from appellate review, having centralized, definitive rulings is a rare thing. Following this tradition, Christine's article sheds much-needed light on the clergy privilege, a doctrine that may seem familiar and well-established, but ends up being complicated and in a state of flux. Her work certainly calls into question whether we should continue lumping the clergy privilege with all of the other professional privileges. 
After all, while clergy are professionals, their decisions involve arguably more complex and cross-cutting considerations. The article also raises tough questions about the pluses and minuses of qualified privileges as opposed to absolute ones. I'm intrigued to see where Christine's work will go next. Having now seen the twists in the clergy privilege, I'm going to look forward to her work exploring whether the same thing is occurring in other contexts, and her proposed piece looking at whether the treatment of religion in the privilege context influences the treatment of religion in other contexts reminds me a lot of an upcoming podcast we have with Anna Lavovsky, who asks a similar question with regard to how courts treat police expertise. Make sure that you tune in for that one as well. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.